NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org. This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by Lando Lakes. We are a farmer-owned co-op reimagining our food system to feed human progress. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On March 9th, the Washington Post brought together local Austin chefs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders for a series of discussions about the future of food and issues at the intersection of culinary culture and broader social justice movements. Top chef, executive producer, and host Padma Lakshmi is internationally known as a food expert, model, actress, and best-selling author. She has also been named a visiting scholar at MIT and serves as an ambassador for the ACLU. In this segment, she'll share how she's leveraged her thought leadership in the food world to create broader social change. Let's listen. (laughs) I know. Come on. Um, all right, so I'm going to introduce you. Okay. I mean, you know, you hear this all the time, but um, I think there are a lot of pe- things that people don't know about you. This is our okay. final discussion of the day. I'm Mary Beth Albright. I'm the food host of the Washington Post. I am the host of the series Food Hacks. Um, this is Padma Lakshmi. She is both the host and the executive producer of Top Chef. Um, she is a model, she is an actress, she is a food expert. She's also a best-selling author. And actually, I think your book, your memoir, was published three years ago to the day. Because it was yesterday, inter- yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It was published on uh, International Women's Day. Right, so, yeah. right. If you haven't read it, you have to read it. It wrecked me in a good way. Um, and um, she's also an AC- the ACLU advocate for women and immigrants' rights and the co-founder of the Endometriosis Association. Foundation. A- Foundation, excuse me. <laughs> Um, no, that's important. No, um, yeah. and if you want to find it on the internet. It's absolutely. Found, but yeah. Yeah, plug it. <laughs> um, and she is also, in association with that, a visiting scholar at MIT. Um, and yesterday, or two days ago, it yeah. was announced that she is um, the UN Development Program, a Goodwill Ambassador for the UN Development Program. Thank you. Which is a really big deal. It was a milestone for me. Half of my family still can't believe it. <laughs> Did you get phone calls? I, we, I have a family WhatsApp group because a lot of my family is in India. And so I hadn't told them, and they saw it on my Instagram, and they were like, is this a joke? And I said, no, it's not a joke. And then someone said, oh, she's going to be insufferable now. So my family does not, you know, does not let me slide at all. They, they like, we all make fun of each other on purpose, so it's, it's fun. They're like, do we have to call you Madam now? It's yes. actually Madam Ambassador. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's stuff like that. Miss Lakshmi if you're nasty, Thank right? You. Exactly. Yeah. Madam Lakshmi. Um, so, yeah, we were talking to the chefs earlier about this and about how they just, like, always get criticisms from their, from their families. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, nobody lets it slide. Um, what are you going to be doing in association with the United Nations? Um, you know, I'm a goodwill ambassador, and I have worked with UN with the UN uh, in the past with UN Women, and I've done trips with them 
uh, to visit UN sites. I will be going internationally. I'll, you know, looking at, I'll be looking at areas where we can not only help uh, develop the community, but see where there is inequality within the system, within their cultural system, and try and change it on the ground. Now, that could be anywhere from going to Africa or going to Asia, you know, any of those countries. But um, really, I just started, so um, while I have done trips with them, it's been a long time ago. So, And that was with UN Women um, when I wasn't an ambassador. But now I will be working under the UN Development Program, it's amazing. Um, and I know that you've been very outspoken uh, in your role with Top Chef about being more inclusive and having more women and more people of color. And now we have, in the finals, two women and a man of color, mm -hmm. um, which is not, okay, now the problem's solved. Bye, you know? No, I in, mean, in no you way, still but. want the competition to be merit-based. You know, you don't want to have people who are there because of their identity, and that somehow ticks off a box. I think you have to find people who are talented and support them so that they can get to the level of competing on equal footing um, with the normal people that you see in chef codes, which are white male. Yeah, but, and it, but it's progress, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've had, we've had a lot of um, women come through Top Chef who have been very formidable. I mean, Stephanie Izzard, who won her season, Kristen Kish, who is here with mm -hmm. Arlo Gray, um, and May, Maylene. We have had a lot of really strong competitors, but we also practice a form of affirmative action on my show. I mean, we never, we never control or, you know, the food really wins. So if there's three white male guys that wind up in the finale, that's what winds up in the finale. But when we cast, we have an equal number of women and men. And you know, we want to have a nice cross-section of chefs and diversify, not only because we're so, you know, we're so uh, conscious or ethical, because that makes a better show. That's more representative of the, of the whole country and it's more exciting and the food is, is often more delicious and different. And, and from somebody who eats every single thing on the show, I want that, you know? You're the only person who eats every single thing on the show. Yes. You're quick fire. Yeah, yeah. And your main competition. Me and, the, and my camera operator who, um, you know, who takes care of food porn. We have a little section. <laughs> we have a little section backstage right outside the kitchen called food porn. And you know when you see those close-ups of the dishes on a Lazy Susan, um, He's the only one other than me, because and he does, but he doesn't have to eat everything. So sometimes there'll be stuff that he, he he's like, oh, I'm not eating that. I don't need to taste that. But me, I have to eat everything. I, I love it that it's a little section in the back, like old video stores. It like is the, the porn section. In it the is. Back. It literally is. There's like a black uh, nylon tarp. It almost looks like a black tent. There's literally <laughs> a table with metal folding, you know, legs that comes down. And he's just in there. And, and sometimes we go in there and we say, well, what did you think? Which one should you choose? <laughs> he's, like he's like the other top chef judge. Yeah, he's like yeah. the quiet one in the did back. He refuse, <laughs> did, did he refuse to eat the durian? This um, was, I'm sorry, I should, I should recap for oh, somebody yeah, yeah, who yeah. missed last week. Yeah. Um, the, the quick fire challenge was using durian fruit, which if you don't know, durian fruit is it's banned from the um, subway in Singapore, isn't it? I think it should be banned. Yeah, from because the it's, no, <laughs> it's so just very bad. 
odorous. Uh, yeah. And it's a very particular smell. It's very funky, but it has a kind of acrid smell laced with some vanilla, but mostly just funk. And they're huge, <laughs> and they're huge fruits that are spiky. So they're very dangerous if they fall on your head as well. <laughs> I grew up with durian in South India, and I always hated it as a child. I would cross the street if I saw down, you know, down the way a fruit seller with his um, cart of you know, cut durian, because it's so big that you don't often buy the whole durian. You buy a quarter of it. It's like this can be the size of a watermelon. So who wins? I can't tell you. Damn Otherwise, it. I would have to give oh, you. Oh, come on. I tried to do that so nice. I know, I know. You know. People do that to you all the time, right? If it makes you feel better, even Krishna, my nine-year-old daughter, does not know who wins. She usually knows because she's with me filming. But this time, since we filmed in Macau and it was in summer, you know, she stayed with her dad and I went to China by myself. And so she doesn't know either. And she always says, but you can tell me I'm your daughter. And I think, <laughs> oh I'll have to give you up to NBC if I tell you. She goes, I'm like, like I tell anyone. Because you can't keep a secret about anything. So, you know. Right. I forgot to mention, in addition to all that stuff, you're also a single mother. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you're from South India, mm -hmm. which is actually not an area that I think Americans have a lot of familiarity with, with food, mm -hmm. right? And so um, do you find that now, um, in your experience, do you find that the diversity in the back of the kitchen mm -hmm. is um, informing Americans' palates and what we're, what we're getting used to when we dine out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in other words, like, I, I read a quote by you somewhere that you were like, I'm fine with culinary cultural appropriation because yeah. I feel like it, it exposes Americans to new flavors mm -hmm. and new, you know, healthy flavors and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So I think it's interesting because South Indian cuisine is not something that yeah. we think about. Indian food is very regional and for the most part abroad, the Indian food that most people know is kind of Northwest or Punjabi food. It's, you know, tandoori chicken and chicken tikka masala and all that stuff. And South Indian food is, you know, other, rather than cream-based, it's coconut milk-based because that's what grows around us. But all Americans are very familiar with ingredients that come from South India because that is where the origin of the peppercorn is. It is responsible for all of colonization, sorry. Um, it is responsible for uh, discovering the new world because they thought they were going left when they went right. Um, and also ginger. Ginger comes from, from South India, from my part of the world, and it's where a lot of spices do originate. So while you may not know the finished dishes necessarily, you, I'm sure if I opened your, your pantry or, or cabinet, I would see lots of ingredients that you just think of as plain old black pepper or ginger, but are actually South Indian. So how does that, do you think that that's opened us up? Do you think that people, you know, cooking with ingredients that they might not be familiar with, but they're using in new and innovative ways, you're cool with that? I'm great with that. I think anything that allows you to have one foot in the door in another culture is fine. You know, I think it, it's, I can only speak for myself. I, I think it's wonderful when people use curry to make meatloaf. I'm not offended by that. I think that's wonderful. What, and when people ask me, you know, I'm interested in this kind of food, but how do I 
how do I make it? And you know, it's hard to make a new dish you've also never tasted. But what I always tell people is to take a staple, just sauteed green beans with butter. I guess Landa likes butter. And um, <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> thank you, in the back. Um, we use Landa likes butter. So, um, but you know, just sauteed green beans and, and maybe using just fresh ginger with your onions to saute that, or using a spice, you know, like Ras Al Hanout from Morocco, or sumac uh, from the Middle East, or, or chipotle powders to give it a smokiness. Like, that is a good gateway mm. to another person or another culture's food. And I feel that way, personally, about everything. Like, you know, I, when I see, uh, a Caucasian woman wearing a sari, I think it's beautiful. I do. I don't get offended when somebody wants to wear a bindi. You know, it's not, I don't, I don't own my culture. I'm very secure in my culture, and so I want to share it. And, you know, I have, I have a big Diwali party. It's like our Christmas and Fourth of July wrapped into one. And I have girlfriends, and my makeup artist, actually, Brigitte, said, you know, I don't know if this is appropriate or whatever, but I'd like to wear a sari. I've always been fascinated. I said, absolutely. Come over, and I'll tell you how to, you know, wrap it. And I said, as long as you're comfortable, I'm very honored and, and flattered that somebody's taking the energy and, you know, the, the, the care to know about my culture. Now, that's different from someone wearing a sari or a bindi and then shaking their hair, head and doing a caricature of, on it, you know. But I think, like, we're in a very sensitive time, and I understand that, um, and it's good overall, but we have to be careful also, like, you know, how, how we choose to meet out our consciousness. Mm. And so um, I, think, I think it's a beautiful thing, because it, that kind of, like, hyper-political correctness does not allow for love. It does not allow for appreciation and admiration. And, you know, I know that when Brigida is asking me to teach her how to wear a sari, um, she's doing it because she, that's always something she's coveted and she's admired about my culture and something that I can share with her and we can get to know each other better that way. So I think we have to make the distinction and use those things, you know, take a moment and, and use those things to bring us closer rather than try and separate us and put us on opposite sides of some, you know, imaginary line we've decided is, is the border. And I think that's so important because you have such a platform. I mean, people are, people really listen to you, not just as a food expert. No, I'm serious. I mean, people listen to you not just as a food expert, but as somebody who is an expert on how to interact with people from other cultures, you know? I think that's because I've done it all my life. Yeah. You know, I, I came to this country when I was four, from India, and I think whenever you're used to traveling between two cultures, and, and it can even be like the culture uh, that you grew up in, the culture of your spouse or your best friend, that you go to her house and eat dinner, there's a lot of code switching that happens. Mm -hmm. But I think that having that practice as a child, because I also went back and forth, my mom sent me every summer back to India, um, helped me uh, adapt to different cultures faster so that when I spent my 20s in, in Italy and in and, and France, for example, I was already used to interpreting another culture and trying to understand it and be respectful of it and finding my place in it. And, and so I think that's good. I think it makes you more aware 
And I think that the more you know about how another person looks at the world, the easier it is to have empathy for them. Do you mind if I ask if you're helping your daughter with that as well? Yeah, I mean, my daughter has to have it because she's biracial, yeah. right? So her father is um, actually a Texas Jewish man from here, and you know, her mother is me. So she's she's used to doing that naturally, uh, and it was hard for her. You know, I've taken she's nine. I've taken her to India like six times, and the first time when she wasn't an infant, it was difficult because in India, you know, there's no there's no measure of personal space. You know, it's a very populated country, especially for children. So adults that you don't even know will come right up to you and pinch your cheeks and muss up your hair and ask you all kinds of impertinent questions. And I'm not talking about relatives you haven't met. I'm talking about like at the temple, you know, people who are complete strangers. And that, you know, also that coupled with the 90 degree and 99% humidity, she was in a bad mood the whole time. And we have, we have my, she, I'm very lucky. She's very mild-tempered, and I never had many problems with her. And she's a great traveler on the plane and stuff. But um, that trip was really hard because we also went for a family wedding, and my cousin was getting married. And so it was like this high-density situation of maximum people in one room. Um, and, you know, in India, we all, because the poor country and even middle class people, we all sleep on the floor and together and every room's got piles of relatives putting, you know, blankets on the floor. And mm -hmm. so I don't think she was used to that. And I remember her going into, you know, my room because I still keep a, an apartment there and some other people were coming and they were kind of like, we were rolling out the thing. She said, this is my room. You know, where, why are you sleeping here? Because she doesn't know. Yeah. And I think a lot of what happens to us is that we just don't know about uh, the other, you know, whether it's another neighbor or another culture or another language. And so a lot of that is just like fear-based or, or, you know, just the not knowing. So the more you can know about someone else, the, the, the easier it is to see through their eyes. Is this coming up in your next book? Because I know you have a book that's in the works right yeah. now, and I do love your writing. Thank so, you. So, yeah, um, I don't know. So. Padma writes, um, she, right, she's written for Vogue, she's written for some newspaper in New York, I don't know what it's <laughs> um, You guys broke Watergate. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of other I'm things. I'm just letting you know, Padma, door's always open. Um, <laughs> just, just letting you know. Actually, my girlfriend writes for you guys, Barka Dutt. She mm -hmm. does op-eds for you guys from India. Door's always open. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, uh, do, uh, are, do you can, is this experience part of? Is it a nonfiction book? Is it? It is. It's a. It's a. It's a book of, of, of prose, and it's you know it's not a memoir, but it's just talking about um, different ways. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I hate to talk about work that's not done because it takes the energy I, out of I it. Know, I but know. But I can tell you that one of the things that I've been occupied with um, for a lot of the last. Uh, few years, you know, even before the election, is that um, we, we all live together in this culture, you know, in America, let's take our culture, and, and we send, we raise girls one way, and we raise boys another way, and we send them out into the world together, and they have totally different rules that they're operating from in their head. And then we expect them to get along and everything to be great. And I think there are changes to be made there. Mm. 
you know, and I, I do think that we don't, you know, especially women, I wasn't, and I, you know, I was raised by an Indian woman here in America, but I'm an American, I was an American kid. I did all my, most of my schooling here, and I went to college here and stuff, so, you know, I, I think that we need to be, we need to educate, I'm not talking about academics, I'm talking about an education of self-reliance and self-preservation and self-advocacy um, more equally to, to both our little boys and our little girls. Well, it sounds like a very, um, it sounds like a different way, a different angle to look at some of the work that you've been doing with the Time's Up movement or, and just like how do we look at you know, mm -hmm. this new generation that we want to just look at differently. Right. And I think, and I don't want to make you talk about it because everybody in this room, we're all creative people. Like, yeah. we wouldn't be here if we right. weren't creative in some way and didn't understand that creative process. Um, and it was funny, the chefs that I interviewed before just said, you know, everybody in food, we're all the storytellers. Yeah. Um, that's all we're doing. And if you're a chef, you're, you're storytelling through food. Yep. Um, you're storytelling through words or you're storytelling through... Your Recipes also, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think your, your role specifically on Top Chef, not to get back to that, but th your role specifically on Top Chef is so, um, as a judge, obviously, in describing the food, but to really bring out things mm -hmm. in other people, in the, in the contestants and in mm -hmm. the other judges. Well, that is the harder job than being a judge, you know? Yeah. That is the job of being a good host. And so a lot of times you don't get to see my opinion on things because there's just so many people on a panel or around a dinner table. And my job is to really elicit uh, their opinions and keep the conversation moving and keep it interesting and, and making sure also that I ask questions in a way that A, doesn't lead the, the judge or the chef, the contestant, but also elicits the most amount of information from them. Because that's, I feel like I'm a conduit to you guys at home. You know, mm -hmm. you can't taste the food. You're not there. Um, I'm not a chef, I'm a food writer, and I've never worked the line in a restaurant, so you're never going to get that kind of criticism for me. I'm really, I see myself as the audience's representative. Yeah. You know, this is supposed to be a professional chef's competition, so when I judge that plate of food, I look at it through the lens of, do I wanna go home and take a shower after work, put on high heels, get a babysitter, spend $100 a head with wine, right, and dessert, and is this plate of food worth it? And that's how I'm looking at it, which is a different point of view than say a chef who's maybe thinking about the technical aspects of it. Obviously I've spent the last 25 years of my life cooking, so I look at it from that way too. But I'm not looking at it from a home cook's perspective. You know, being a professional chef is a completely different skill. It incorporates your palate and love for food and all of that, but it is not just about making yummy food. It's about making 50 plates that are all different, that are all hot and come out at the same time and that always taste the same. So if you come to my restaurant and you're you know, ordering a pasta dish, that three months from now when you come back, it's going to taste the same way that it did three months ago because that's why you're back. Most people will only order one or two dishes from the same restaurant they love. You know, they don't often, they don't branch out so much. So you have to be sure that um, you're giving them a consistent experience. Did it take you a while to own that role? Because it, it is, it's a critical role 
and I don't know what I like to, when people ask me, because I've had the pleasure of interviewing you before, and um, when people ask me about you, I always say, how beautiful she is, is the least interesting thing about her. Thank you. Like, that's what's so great about it, because you are such an activist, and you are such a great writer. And so my question is, did it take you a while to own that role um, that you have on Top Chef? Or did you see that from yourself from the very beginning? I, I always did see myself as the audience's representative or, you know, as, as a food expert. Um, not, definitely not about the technical skill of making, you know, something necessarily, but about ingredients and flavors and, and, but it did take me a long time to own that. You know, when I started Top Chef, you know, I only had one cookbook out and, you know, I'll, tell you the truth, it was a small book. Like it was no, but you know, it wasn't like the art of eating or anything. So, so people didn't know a lot about me and I had already hosted shows on the Food Network and I had hosted television in Italy, but the general American public really didn't know me. And all they knew about me was that I was a model. Mm -hmm. And we were the sister show to Project Runway, which came before us. Oh, that's right. And so I think that a lot of people, especially in the media, um, you know, thought, oh, Bravo's just stuck another model in this show um, because I, you know, that was my history. I, you know, after college I started modeling and that's how I got my bills paid, you know? Yeah. And um, so I think there was a lot of skepticism. Um, I think there's a lot of skepticism anyway when you see um, someone who's different on television and, and you don't know why they're there and it's, speaking from a place of authority and stuff. And then, you know, somewhere along the line, I just realized that I had my own set of skills and that's what I brought to the table. And I didn't have to be, you know, an expert at running a big professional kitchen like Tom, you know, our head judge is. And I didn't have to be like Eric Repair who, you know, had all these Michelin stars. And I, you know, that I could own my own body of knowledge. And I think actually Eric was very instrumental to that, you know, he, I remember one time I was feeling down, this was one of the earlier seasons, and you know, he actually pulled me aside and he said, he said, look, he said, I've been, I've known a lot of chefs and I've known a lot of people, he said, you have a great palate, it's a very subtle and sensitive palate and the knowledge that you bring is much different than most American people because you have this heritage from India and, you know, Kerala is where a lot of spices come from and so, I just grew up with it in my grandmother's kitchen with all the women in my family and I was, I was always drawn to it because I do have a very sensitive palate, I have a very strong sense of smell. So I approach cooking from, from that prism. Um, I can usually tell what's in a dish just by tasting it. You know, I can reproduce that taste or that product. Maybe I won't use exactly the same ingredients, but I will get there. And that is, for me, cooking, is not an intellectual experience, although I am a writer and I like to think I write about it in a very serious way. For me, food is a sensual experience, and it's, what I mean by that is it's a sensorial experience. I experience food through my nose, through my sense of touch, through sense of taste, um, through actually even hearing. I can tell when mustard seeds are ready just by listening for the sound of how they pop. I can tell if a piece of meat is done by touching it without cutting into it sometimes. And, and I can tell when something, when the garlic has been cooked at too high a heat and it burns and it gets bitter. So 
So, so I have always used all my senses to cook, and I think that's why people are so passionate about food. You don't have to be a food professional to be food obsessed, you know, and that's beyond just eating for our physical survival. And so I just started leaning into um, to what I knew and pursuing what I was interested in, and I just decided one day that I knew enough. I just made that connection in my head because I figured that the people who hired me and kept bringing me back every season knew what they were doing and our ratings were up and we had Emmy nominations. So I, you know, whether I'm feeling insecure inside and don't believe it yet, I had that kind of evidence. My paycheck was an evidence of my worth. And P.S., your Emmy nomination for Outstanding Host. Yeah. So it's not just Thank the show you. had yes. an Emmy nomination. We've been so. nominated for 27 Emmys total. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, our time is up. I'm so okay. sad. Um, where do you want Top Chef to go next? Quick. I want to take Top Chef to India. Um, I would love to take it to India. I think it's too expensive for us. I run with a very big entourage. I, we're like 150 people. But I do think we could go there for a finale. So I've been lobbying for it as much okay. as I can. Thanks for that. So write in if yes. you think this is a good okay. idea to, to bravo2tv.com. Um, Padma Lakshmi, thank you so much for Thanks being for here. Thanks for having me. So nice amazing. to see you again. Um, so nice to thank see you, you always. Um, I want an invite to the Diwali party. Please Okay, come. yes, Always perfect. in the fall. Um, our full interviews and highlights are going to be available on WashingtonPostLive.com on Monday, so you can relive this. Yes. And we have it on film that you just invited me to do Diwali okay. party. So and if you you're interested in spices, you can pick up the Encyclopedia yes. of Spices and Herbs by yours truly. Which is fantastic. Thank you so much for being here.
Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at NYBG.org.